uh, good to have Ben back up here, right? Good to see him back up here. and Just, um, just grateful we serve a healing God that, that continues to work and continues to, to, to work through our lives and our bodies and to bring us back to, to health. And I say that because I took my turn on the COVID train last week, and uh, I, I cleared my quarantine a day or two ago, so I'm up here with you, and I'm going to wheeze through this this morning, because when Brad asked me at the beginning of the week if I wanted uh, to tag out and let him take it, I said very famously, no, I'll be fine by Sunday. And um, I am, with one exception, I can't breathe, so... <laughs> So you get me, I may have to drag this stool over here and sit down at some point, but uh, you got me here this morning. So it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, we were joining online last week, so if you're joining online this week, we're glad to have you here as well too, but uh, glad to see you all uh, here. Uh, today we're going to talk about a, a story, and it's a story that many of you are going to be pretty familiar with. It's a story that many of you know actually fairly well, and if you don't know it, you're going to be pretty well acquainted with it here in a few minutes. It's a story that changed the course of history. We're going to tell a story about in this particular moment in time how the entire course of human future and now looking back history was, was altered, was changed. It was knocked off of God's original design and original intention. It's a story that still lingers with us today. You still feel the impacts of it today and the fallout of it today. It's something that takes place in every one of our lives. It's a problem. It's a sickness that's in our lives that, that we have that we can't, maybe you can't identify, maybe you, you don't know what it is, but you feel it, you sense it, you know it's there. It's a brokenness. It's something that shakes you down to your very core. It's something that, that rattles you, that, that impacts everything that you do and every decision you make. It's something that get, gets bragged about in locker rooms or maybe corner offices or something that gets judged in courtrooms. It, it's something that, again, rattles all the way down through you, and you may not be able to define what this is, but the Bible has a definition for it. It's sin. It's sin, and it all started on a particular day in a garden. Last week, as, as we've been going through this series called Check It Out, going through the, the the main themes of the Bible. I, I spent a couple weeks setting this up, and last week Brad got into Genesis chapter one, and it was it was kind of funny because you know he said we're going to start on page one and, and talked about creation and talked about how God spoke the world and and the universe into existence and God created mankind and I get to follow that wonderful topic with a very light topic today of of what takes place on page three of of the Bible and that's sin. It's the fall of man. It's a topic that is extremely deep, it's extremely theological, there's so much to it, and we could spend weeks on this particular topic, but, but as we get ready to get into this topic today, and as we, we go to Genesis chapter 3, I'm actually going to jump into Genesis 2 and, and just kind of set this up a little bit. If you weren't here or missed last week, I would encourage you to go watch Brad's sermon from a week ago, but Genesis chapter 2, uh, we, we see that he's created everything and he's created man and, and here's kind of how our story sets up today, starting in verse 8 of Genesis 2. It says, Then the Lord God planted in a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So file 
that away uh, just, just for a moment. There's two trees, tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. Then the Lord God placed the man in the garden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Next few verses, God creates the woman out of the side of the man and, and he brings them together and he puts them in, in union and, and, and calls them married, husband and wife. And down at the very end of this chapter, verse 25, it says, Now the man and the woman, uh, or his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. As a kid, that was one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I thought it was hilarious. You know, and I'm like, oh, cool. So, you know, if, if, if we were in Bible times, we'd just get to be naked all the time, and it'd be awesome, right? And it's, it's like my three-year-old, you know. He runs the house naked and does not care that he's naked. You know, it's like we, had, we got family in town, and, and he comes bolting through from the bathroom through the living room, the kitchen, upstairs last night, naked, just giggling. He's, he's excited. He's happy. To be, he has no shame. You know, it's, it's kind of almost like, it, like if you've got a dog or, uh, you know, an animal that just lays there exposed for the world to see. They don't know any different. That's just natural for them. That's how the Garden of Eden was. It was just natural and normal. There was nothing to be ashamed about. There wasn't any any such a word as modesty. That didn't even exist because it wasn't necessary because there was nothing to be ashamed of. And then Genesis chapter 3 happens. And as we get into the next chapter, here's what we read, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Notice where he's going to go with this. He's going to try to trip him up a little bit here. Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you will die. Verse 4, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. We, we read this and this seems like a fairly innocent thing. She ate a piece of fruit that she wasn't supposed to. My kids do that all the time. They get in the refrigerator and they eat something they're not supposed to have. They eat a snack before dinner or, or something that simple. Not, that seems like that's what this is. God said don't eat it, and she did. Okay, she disobeyed. But it's so, so much deeper than that. It's so much bigger than just a simple disobedience that took place. See, Eden was created, and, and I think Eden was kind of like heaven on earth. It was this symbol of perfection. It was a, a place of purity. It said in chapter 2, they felt no shame. It was complete purity in the Garden of Eden. And God was the source of everything that they had. He created paradise for them. And in this one moment here, this one action that they did, Adam and Eve tainted and corrupted perfection. They corrupted paradise. They contaminated the world. And here we are today, thousands of years later, living downstream from that decision. My hometown, we have a creek that runs through that has been called the most polluted creek in the United States. I don't know if that's true or not, but 
but it's a definitely a polluted creek. And just north of my hometown is the, the, the largest toxic Superfund site on the planet. And it, it's, it's the site of an old lead and zinc mine that existed back in World War II. And when the war was over, they just left it and abandoned it. And, and now those are filled up with water and it's contaminated water and it bubbles up out of the, the ground. And there's a creek that runs through this area that, that's crystal clear. And the creek hits the bubble up and in a moment... It goes from crystal clear to rust orange, and it's contaminated, and you'll actually see skeletons of fish that have swam that got into it, and just a few feet later, couldn't go any further. And it flows through my hometown, and, and it stays contaminated until it hits the river where it dilutes it down enough that it's, it's not a problem anymore. But sin functions in that same way. We live downstream from the contamination that took place in the Garden of Eden. And again, we could spend weeks talking about sin. But what I want to do in our time today is spend just a few minutes and look at exactly what sin has impacted that affects us today. How it trickles down and how we still see it and still feel its impacts today. So here's the first one. Sin poisoned the world and when it did, it impacted human nature. It impacted our very nature. Last week, Brad mentioned creation. And towards the end of the creation account, God creates man. And there's a little bit of a cool asterisk on how he creates man because there's something extra that comes with man that wasn't with the rest of it. Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. That was something he didn't do for any of the rest of creation. He created mankind in his own image. And there's a phrase that we have that goes along with this. It's, it's a Latin phrase that talks about the image of God. It's called the Imago Dei. It's a phrase that you see popping up in theological studies or Bible studies or a Bible school. But Imago Dei is one that we hear all the time. It's Latin for the image of God. And Imago Dei is a big topic because we talk about Imago Dei not just because we like, oh, cool, I can say something in Latin. Imago Dei, it's like it's understood that it in and of itself is a living, breathing representation of God through us. It's not just God, but it's God alive through us. That's what Imago Dei means. St. Augustine was a 4th century uh, theologian, church father. He talked about the image and the likeness of God and that it didn't necessarily have to do with physical form. I, I don't know if, if we look like God in his image. I don't know about that. But what Augustine said is it has more to do with our wisdom, that we can share the wisdom of God and that we have the capacity and the faculties to think rationally, unlike the rest of creation. Unlike the rest of the animal kingdom or plant life or anything like that, we can think rationally. And in particular, he said that being made in the image of God has to do with our ability to relate to God. And we think about this. We can love and try to love like God loves. We, we can try to serve like God serves. We see this in the pages of Scripture. We see that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us and was sacrificial, so we try to be sacrificial for one another. That's what it means for us to try and relate to God, and we have that ability unlike the rest of creation. According to Augustine, that's what it means to be made in his image. That's the imago Dei playing out in us. And we see this very thing actually take place in the flesh in Genesis chapter 3. That was what was cool about Eden. And it was perfect. It was paradise. It was pure. 
And right after they sinned, we see a scene that I think probably played out on a regular basis. Genesis 3, verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. I understand this to mean this was a regular occurrence. Like, he didn't just happen to pop down that afternoon right after they messed up. Like, this was something that they did. They would walk with God in the garden, and they would interact with him and relate to him the same way you might go on a hike with a friend or that you might go on a drive with your spouse, the same way you would interact with anybody else that you come across and interact with. But here was the issue. When the serpent tricked them, they came to the conclusion that what God had created for them wasn't enough. And they turned away from the perfection of God, and instead they focused on the material world instead. We see this play out time and time again. It's something that we're guilty of today, too. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1 when he says that they quit creating, or that they stopped worshiping the creator and they worshiped the created things instead. And because of that, God gave them over to their selfish desires. That's exactly what we see happen here in Genesis chapter 3. And as a result of that, that Imago Dei, that God in the flesh, or that, that, that image of God that we see through the flesh, suffered. It suffered there, and we still feel the effects of it today. They were given the chance to make a choice, and they made the wrong choice. Sin results from our abuse of free will. It results from us having the option to make a decision and abusing that option. Now, parents, you understand this with kids. If, if you have kids and you give them the chance to make choices, you have to explain the consequences of those actions to them. Our, our kids are different ages, and we kind of let them make a little bit different decisions based on their ages, but I always try to follow up with my oldest especially, and after she's made a decision, was that a good decision or not? Should you have made that decision? Would you make it again? Questions that need to be asked. Because at some point in the not-so-distant future, she'll be out of my home and making decisions without asking me, without me telling her what to do. That's the way choices work. But sin arises when we abuse that free will. That's the second thing sin had an impact on. Sin impacted our free will. It impacted our ability to make decisions. Now, this concept of free will, this isn't a term you're going to see in the Bible. Like, you're not just going to turn to some page of Scripture and, and read about free will. It's not in there. It was a term that was coined in the second century by a church father named Tertullian. He started reading Scripture, and he realized that Scripture is very clear. We have freedom to make our own decisions. And he came up with the idea that that's free will. He read things like what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 when he says, You've been called to live in freedom, brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. What's he saying? You can choose. Do you want to serve God or serve yourself? Do you want to serve others through God or be selfish? You pick. Or Jesus himself in John chapter 7 when he says, Anyone who chooses to do the will of my Father or to do the will of God, we'll find out whether my teaching comes from God. In other words, you can pick. You do the will of God or you don't. There's going to be consequences either way. Free will is our ability and our freedom to make our own decisions and our own choices. And see, here's why this works this way. God being sovereign and being in control of everything and, and ruling over everything 
and us making our own decisions and having that freedom, those must coexist at the same time. It's easy to think that if God's in control, then, then I'm not going to make dumb decisions. It doesn't work that way. Those have to, have to work at the same time. And, and here's why. God is just, but he's also merciful. He's truth, but he's also grace. There's two sides to this. And maybe you know somebody that, that lives in one of those two extremes. They're just or they're truth. They're over here. Everything is black and white. There are rules, and you follow those rules to the letter. And if not, you've messed up. And there's consequences. Or you're over here, and it's all truth and, or a grace and mercy. And you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. We love you anyway. You know, not a big deal. We'll let it slide. God is both. And he's in the middle. He's both extreme, and he's in the middle. And because of that, our free will falls between that. Yes, there are consequences to it. But God's over here on the grace side as well, too. And we look at this, and we kind of understand where our ability to make decisions falls into this and how it's been impacted by sin. Augustine, when, when he was coming up with this idea and talking about free will, he came up with the idea that humans don't make decisions often based on necessity. But more likely than not, they make decisions based on what they want, your freedom. Or maybe you've heard the phrase, I made this decision because I can. That's the freedom that we have. Most of our decisions aren't based on necessity, they're based on desire. And we see that, and what's happened is that sin has come into our lives, and it has clouded our ability, I think, to understand what's going to come next when we make a decision. Jennifer and I started watching a show this past week called Ordinary Joe. It's a new show that came out on, on NBC this past fall. And the premise of the show starts with uh, 10 years in the past with this guy named Joe. And he shows up to his college graduation. And he shows up about 20 minutes late uh, to his graduation. And there's a girl giving a speech on the stage. And you find out that's his on-again, off-again girlfriend slash best friend. But because he gets there so late, he bumps into another girl who also got there late. So they sit in the very back and kind of chit-chat through the graduation. And, and after graduation, his, his girlfriend, Jenny, invites him to go hang out for the weekend. And this new girl, Amy, invites him to go hang out for the weekend. And then his best friend invites him to go hang out for the weekend. And then the show jumps ahead 10 years. And it's set in three realities. And each reality is based on what decision he made that day. In one reality, he went and hung out with Jenny, and they're married with a child, and they had to give up their dreams because they had to care for their child. In the other reality, he went and hung out with Amy, and now he's married to her and followed his dreams, and he's a famous rock star, and she's a politician. And in the third reality, he's not married to either one of them because he hung out with his buddy, and now he's a police officer and following in his dad's footsteps, and everybody interacts in his life. The consequences of everybody involved are different. There's no way the premise of the show says he could have known what his life would have been like based on that one decision. And maybe that's an oversimplification, but I think sin does that in our lives. It impacts our ability to see what might come of our decisions. And in fact, Augustine would argue that, that sin has made our ability to even make decisions contaminated or corrupted. Kind of like this, I, I think if, if you can picture like maybe when you were a kid, 
playing at the playground on a, on a teeter-totter or a seesaw. You ever try to balance it? You know, you get the same amount of, of weight of kids on either side. You know, I was always the add-on because I was like the littlest kid or else I got thrown, you know, because I was way up here and couldn't get down. But you try to balance it with the same amount of kids on each side. And our lives are like that. I think we try to balance it, and, and we've got bad decisions over here and good decisions, and we want to make more good decisions than bad. We know we're going to make bad, so we think if we can at least balance it with as many good decisions, that's going to help us focus more on God. What he says is that with sin, this side over here is just already loaded up. And it's like you've got four kids on this side, and I try to jump over here. What's going to happen? I'm probably going to slide down, and I'm just going to naturally go this way. What he says is that sin causes us to just naturally be pulled this direction. It naturally causes us to pull over here and to focus on the selfish desires of life. You think about it. What's easier to do? Make a decision for something that's selfish and self-serving that feels good or not? It's this one over here. That's, That's where we're pulled all the time. And the reason for that is because sin causes us to be lost. Sin leads us down a dark path, and it doesn't give us a roadmap to get out of there. It just leads us further into the dark path. It contaminates our very lives. It contaminates our very beings. And that's because sin traps us and tricks us the exact same way that it did Eve that day in the garden. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Look what it said, that, that, that what caught Eve's attention when she saw the tree. She said she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. The problem is she got caught in Satan's half-truth here. Because remember what he said one verse before? You will be like God. That's what he told her. That's the half-truth that he told her. You won't die. You'll be like God. What she fell victim to here is the temptation and the sin of self-determination. Or to put it more frankly, there's one word to sum that up. She fell victim to pride. And we talk about sin, and it's easy to say, well, sin is sin. But I'm going to say this about pride. Pride isn't just a sin. Pride is the sin. It's the sin. Pride is at the root of every sin that we could commit. It's at the root of every murder. It's at the root uh, of, of, of every adulterous affair. It's at the root of every shady or, or, or crooked business deal. It's at the root of hatred or racism or, or anything that we could do. It's at the root of vandalism. It's at the root of violence. Pride is at the root of that because pride leads to selfishness. Pride leads to us only caring about what works for us and putting us in control of situations. That that's what makes it so dangerous. And what really makes pride dangerous is it's probably the one sin that we all struggle with, at least to some degree. And part of that is because that's our culture. Our American culture says, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, or you're a self-made man or a self-made woman. And there's like this, this thing we can brag about and kind of thump our chest about that. And, and our culture tells us that we should do what it works for us, look out for ourselves, take care of ourselves, etc. And we struggle with it. And what makes it dangerous is it's probably the one sin we all commit that we're the least aware of. And that's why the Bible has so much to say about pride. Like Proverbs 16, it tells us, pride goes before destruction. 
Or Matthew 23, it says, the greatest among you must become a servant. But Jesus tells his disciples, but those who humble or exalt themselves will be humbled. In other words, if you don't humble yourself, God will do it for you. And that's not going to be a fun trip for you. Or maybe the most point blank statement about pride, James chapter 4, God opposes the proud. It doesn't say God tolerates the proud. It doesn't say that God gets frustrated by the proud. No, it says God puts himself in direct opposition to the proud. Tonight, the Chiefs and the Bills are going to play a football game. And there's not going to be this moment in the game where like Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen meet and say, you know what, we don't care who wins just so long as we all have fun. They're not going to do that. They're in direct opposition. And for those three and a half hours, they are directly opposed to one another. Okay, players aren't going to swap teams at halftime. No, they're going to try to defeat one another. Direct opposition. God puts himself in direct opposition to the proud. I think that's why the Bible over and over tells us to carry a cross and to be crucified daily with Christ. It tells us so much about becoming humble and accepting the humility that Christ had for us. And it tells us pretty clearly that because we're lost and because we can't find ourselves, that apart from Jesus, he says in the Gospel of John, apart from him, we're nothing. We need to remember that. We need to hold that and remember that statement because here's something that that you've probably been lied about by the enemy, okay, is that there's not a freedom in sin. The enemy likes to tell you that. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to be bound by these rules. You don't have to be bound by this old book. No, there's freedom. Just do whatever you want. It doesn't work that way. Sin doesn't offer freedom. Sin offers entrapment, okay? Sin offers a, a stickiness. Sin is addictive because sin feels good. Sin is fun, And don't look at me like that because if sin's not fun, you're not doing it the right way. Okay, don't judge me. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) But here's why. Here's why sin is so just attractive. Go back to how Eve was tempted. And look exactly at how she was tempted in Genesis chapter 3. She saw the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, Desirable for gaining wisdom. Okay, think about those three things for just a moment here. Pleasurable, attractive, gaining wisdom. Thousands of years later, John, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, had this to say in 1 John chapter 2. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, he says, but from the world. Notice something? It's the same three things Eve was tempted with. Exact, the same three things here. He says there's a desire for for physical cravings or physical pleasures. That's fleshly desires. That's the lust of the flesh. Or uh, he says a a pride in everything, I'm sorry, a craving for everything we see. That's, That's a visual craving. Lust of the eyes or, or pride in our achievements. That's about uh, our social position. That's the boastful pride of life. So when you think about sin and you think about temptation, 
we're drawn to one of three, if not more than one of the three, but at least one of the three areas that Eve was tempted in that John writes about here. Sin falls in one of three ways. Sin becomes an issue of passion, possession, or position. That's it. We're drawn to those things. Passion, possession, position. And it's not unique to Eve. And it's not something that's just part of us. This is how Jesus himself was tempted by the enemy. Matthew chapter 4, or the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, when we read about the temptation of Jesus, it's these three temptations. His passion, his possession, and his position. He tempts him to turn stones into bread so that he can eat and fuel his flesh, or to take over the whole kingdom you know, and, and gain that, or to become God. Those are the temptations that, that the enemy throws at Jesus. They're the exact same temptations he threw at Eve. Exact same thing she saw when she saw the tree. And here's why that is. Satan is a master at twisting things just enough to get us because Satan lives in the half-truths. He's a master of misleading, a master of misdirection. Remember I told you this a couple weeks ago about putting the word in your heart and storing it there. When Satan tempted Jesus, what did he do? He twisted scripture. He twisted it. He didn't make it up but he twisted it. He took a little bit out. So it was mostly true, but it wasn't completely true. It was a half-truth, just like he did with Eve. He tells her, you won't die. Well, she didn't right then and there, but she did years later. Death was never part of God's plan. See, here's the problem with this, is Satan knows how to come after us. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul writes this, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And no wonder, he says a few verses later, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Satan's lies look like truth because there's truth in them. He's not going to come at you and try to convince you that a square is a circle. Like He's not going to do that. But what he's going to get you to do is start questioning the integrity of the square. He's going to get you to slowly get distracted from it. And he's going to chip away at it. He misdirects. He misleads. He seems sincere, and in the short term, he probably is. Because he's going to make you a promise, and he'll actually uphold his end of the promise for a little while. See, here's the problem, though. His promises come with a cost. And he keeps the price tag hidden. He doesn't tell you how much it's going to cost, but once you sign your name to the agreement, it's set in stone. And he'll come one of these days, and he'll require payment, and when he does, then he'll show you what the price tag was. And by then, it's too late. Don't believe me? Ask somebody who's made a mistake and lost everything. And ask them, if you would have known that this was going to cost you everything when you made this mistake, would you have still done it? See, I think all of us have fallen into this trap where in the heat of of the moment, we make a decision and we know there's going to be consequences, but we don't understand the full depth of them. We don't stop long enough in the heat of the moment to understand just exactly what it's going to do and that ripple effect it's going to have on everybody else involved. And that's the biggest lie the enemy tells us, is he clouds our vision to not even think about that. See, Eve, when she sinned, when she took that that fruit, 
This wasn't just her stealing an apple out of the fridge. This wasn't just her disobeying God and something along those lines, like, like having a snack before dinner without asking your parents. That's not what she did. She made a decision that she could be in control of her own life, and she quit trusting God in that time. Her sin was challenging God's position as God. And that may seem like that's not that big of a deal, but that's why surrender and submission to God is so important. Because again, that was Satan's ultimate temptation to her. What did he say? You will be like God. You'll become like God. You won't die. And folks, we commit that same sin every time we put ourselves in control of our lives. Every time we declare ourselves sovereign, we commit the same sin as, as, as Eve. It may not be a piece of fruit from a tree, but it's something else that we do. And, and here's the worst part about this, is that because God is over here and he's truth and he's just, there's punishment for sin. There can't not be. You can't say that something is a sin and not punish it when it's committed. You can't say something is a crime and leave it unpunished when it's committed. It doesn't work that way. For Adam and Eve in the garden that day, the punishment was a curse and it was exile. God curses him over the next few verses. He, he takes the serpent. I don't, I don't know what the serpent looked like, but he turns him into a snake, takes his, his arms and legs away and makes him crawl on his belly. And he tells them, you're going to be crushed one day by their offspring. He's talking about Jesus thousands of years later. Jesus is going to come, and he's going to be crucified, and then resurrect from the dead, and he's going to crush your head when he does that. That's what he tells the serpent. He tells Eve, oh, by the way, when you give birth now, it's going to be brutal. <laughs> We're going to call it labor. We're going to make childbirth difficult for you. Ladies, that wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> but, but you get to still deal with that downstream these days. And he tells the man, Adam, you're going to work and work and work and work. I gave you all this. Now you're going to go do it all on your own. And it's easy to look at this and, and to think, why would God do that? It's simple. God is holy and he's perfect. And he had to make sure that that contamination didn't get into his perfection. And so to kind of really prove his point and drive it home, he exiles them from the garden and he makes sure they can't get back. Genesis 3 ends this way in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us. They know good from evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Uh, then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. He kicked them out, and he made sure they could not come back. Because in his perfection, in his purity, imperfections cannot be there, or what is perfect and pure is no longer perfect and pure. And that seems harsh. You might ask, how would a loving God do that? How would a loving God remove somebody that he created because they made a mistake? The answer is simple. It's not popular, but it's simple. Because he's God. Because he's holy. Because he's perfect. And sin can't be where he is. So he had to remove it. Because once they had gotten a hold of sin... They weren't going to let it go, and he knew that. 
And so he removes him from the garden and he puts a flaming sword to make sure they can't come back. And he leaves him to wander the wilderness. And folks, that's, that's page three of the Bible. <laughs> the Bible that often has over a thousand pages. This takes place on page three. And the good news is there's a whole lot more Bible to follow. Like, like you may have come and like, man, this was a really uplifting sermon. I'm glad I'm here today. But there's a reason there's a, a thousand or more pages left. Because we realize what happens next. God removes him from the garden, but he's not done with him. And he's not done with us. Because even though he removed him from the garden, and even though he is truth, and he is pure, and he is holy, he is also grace, and he is mercy, so he pursued them. He went after them in his grace. His grace that, that, that is his, his generous and his unmerited attention for humanity. He went after them to try and begin that process of healing that broken relationship, of healing that brokenness. Grace is this free gift that we have. There's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to deserve it. But he offers it to us anyway. And here, this to me is one of the coolest things about grace. I was doing a word study on this this week and came across this here on grace. The Greek word for grace is the word gratia. The Latin word for free is the word gratis. They're the same word. In one language, it's grace. In the other language, it's free. But they come from the same word. And to me, that, that explains the work of Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. When God sent him at just the right time, as we're going to talk about in a few weeks, he sent him at just the right time. It was for us. And what it costs us is nothing materially. It just costs us spiritually. We give our lives to him. We give our hearts to him. God's ultimate plan for humanity came to fruition at the cross of Christ. It came to, to be known at his cross. That was his ultimate show of grace. And through Jesus' work on the cross, God gave us what we didn't deserve, which is grace and life. And he withheld from us what we do deserve, which is death and condemnation. Paul sums it up extremely well in Romans chapter 3. When he says this, starting in verse 22, he says that we, may, we were made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. But God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice of sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. It's that simple. Sin contaminated everything, but God sent Jesus for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't die but would have eternal life. Sin has corrupted and contaminated us and it has left us lost, but Jesus came to bring us home, to reconcile us, to restore us, to redeem us back to that relationship with God 
so that one day we can experience that Eden with him. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and we're going to step right into our time of, of communion. If you didn't grab a cup, you can grab it here in just a moment. But communion is that time where we stop and we ponder and we remember what he did on the cross for us and how it's through asking him to forgive us of our sins that we're made right with him and repenting and turning away from that life of sin, no matter how difficult that may be, it's not always easy to turn and walk away from sin because it's so enticing. But we focus on him and we follow him. And this time of communion is when we remember that. We, we look back on that and we remember what he did for us and all that we do. Let's pray. Father, we, we know, God, that we are lost in our brokenness, that we're lost in our sin, God, that we are contaminated. But we know that you sent the blood of Jesus to the world, that through what he did on the cross for us, it washes away this, it redeems us to you. And the cost for us is asking you to forgive us and believing, believing that Jesus is Lord making him the Lord of our lives, giving that control back to you. So God, I pray for all the hearts today that might be facing a decision like that, might be struggling with a decision like that, God, you would just give them the assurance that you are all that they'll ever need and that you're all that they could ever want because what you create is good. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.